Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Andy Acton to the podcast. Dr. Acton is a veterinarian who owns and practices a mixed practice in Ogama, Saskatchewan. Dr. Acton does lots of cow-calf work in his practice and has years of practical experience. He's also board certified by the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners with a specialty in cow-calf practice. Andy is the 2022 recipient of the Western Canadian Bovine Practitioners Veterinarian of the Year Award. And this week, Andy's joining me to discuss one of the more common diseases that we see in cow-calf herds, the parasitic disease called coccidiosis. We'll start the discussion with a case of nervous coccidiosis that Andy examined just a few weeks ago and go on to discuss the ins and outs of the disease and how to deal with it. Let's get started. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. And before we get started on our discussion today, maybe I'll get you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure can, John. Uh, first start off, thank you for having me uh, join you here today. It's a real pleasure and it's good to be able to talk about some of the diseases and problems that our clients are facing. Myself, I practice at Ogama, which is south of Regina, about an hour south of there. Uh, grew up about an hour east of Regina and took my uh, veterinary education at WCVM where you were a young prof when I was going through and uh, finished there in 1992. Had an interest in mixed animal practice, specifically more to the cattle end of things is what I was looking to do. Having had a couple of really good mentors in rural mixed practice, I kind of followed that lead and came down to Ogama after graduating in 92 with one of my classmates. We were partners for a few years from 92 to 96. Uh, 96, I took over the sole ownership of the clinic, had some amazing associates and helpers, techs, vets, everything in all the years in between. And uh, now we're running the practice with uh, my partner, Dr. Jasmine Paulson, and taking care of an area South of Regina, partways to Regina, and then down to the border with the states, and uh, between Weyburn and Assiniboia. So we uh, really enjoy our practice mix and the clients we get to work with. Uh, a lot of cow-calf in our area, so that's something that keeps us busy a lot of the time. Yes, yeah, so a busy mixed practice, and you're very busy at this time of year with lots of different cases. You're also one of the few veterinarians in Canada that went and did practitioner boards. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So American Board of Veterinary Practitioners is classification that you can take a little bit of extra training and certification when you're in a practice rather than needing to leave practice and go back to a university type setting for further education. So it was something I did as a matter of interest and and a little bit of forced study, having a, a goal and something you had to work towards, you know, help put a little bit of the spurs to me in, in doing some of the extra reading and learning, some case reports. So at the end of that, I had my uh, uh, specialty in beef cattle practice under the ABVP. And it's been something that I've, I've enjoyed doing and great group of people to work with going through the certification and the CE that they put on. it's uh, It's been really helpful to just keep an up interest and, and making sure you, you're always learning. Last week, you sent me a text about a case that you saw, and maybe we can start by just 
talking about what you got called out to look at. What did you see? So this was a neat one, John, not for the calf, obviously, but it was really incidental to when we were at a farm doing some pregnancy checking. So we were at a producer's farm checking about 170 cows. And while they were moving some animals to bring up another group for checking, they were moving some young heifers and a late born steer calf that they'd held over from late last summer he was born. And this calf moved into their alleyway and just dropped and started convulsing. He was having a fairly major seizure. By the time uh, myself and our tech got over to uh, have a look at him, there wasn't a whole lot for us to do other than to be bystanders for, for those first few minutes at least. And then we were just trying to assess and, and make sure that we were correct in what we were looking at. It was uh, about a 800-pound beef calf, and he was paddling. His head was twitching. His eyes were twitching. A little bit of foam at the mouth, and it did subside in a few minutes. We just had to leave him alone to be quiet and carry on with the rest of our, our herd work. But on keeping an eye on him for a little while, he'd had a couple more seizures during the time we were there. And while we looked at the calf, he's in beautiful body condition, a good general health, but he did have bloody diarrhea. And this is actually the first that the owner had seen of diarrhea in this calf. Interesting. So what did you diagnose or what did you think was the diagnosis for that particular calf? Yeah, our presumptive diagnosis right there was nervous coccidiosis. So it's something that we don't see daily for sure. But we will see and hear about a number of cases every fall of nervous coccidiosis, which is basically a byproduct of a, of a toxin. They, uh, they believe it's not even properly isolated, but a toxin produced when the calf has a, a fairly severe case of coccidiosis and the toxin affects the nervous system and causes these repeated seizures. Okay, so we'll come back to nervous coccidiosis maybe a bit later because it is kind of the rarer condition, as you said. Let's just talk about coccidiosis itself because it is one of the more common conditions that we see in cow-calf herds and in dairy calves as well. First of all, let's just start about when we typically see it. What, what are the times where we typically see coccidiosis cases in beef herds? It's a, it's a really important disease and it's generally listed as or talked about as a production-limiting disease. So we will see, in our practice, two main times that we'll see cases of coccidiosis. The first is in those young spring calves, usually late winter born, early spring born, and they will show up with coccidiosis in approximately the six to eight-week age range. It can be much earlier than that, but it's not something we will see in those first couple of weeks of life. Another time that we will see coccidiosis is in newly weaned calves in the fall. These are often the later born calves, April and May and even June. And these calves probably haven't had the same exposure as neonates, as very young calves, as those winter calves did. But they will pick it up kind of for the first time in that early fall period. And if their immune system has any challenges or the environment has 
a large load of contamination for them, they could come down with a bad case coccidia as a weaned calf. Okay, let's talk about the parasite. It's a single-celled parasite, so this thing that we can only see under the microscope, and it can actually affect many different species of animals, but we know that cattle get cattle coccidia and sheep get sheep coccidia and goats get goat coccidia. Let's talk about cattle in particular. How many species of coccidia are there that can infect cattle? They have identified 13 species. We mainly see a very small number of those, maybe three to five. The two that I'm aware of the most are Imeria bovis and Imeria zernii. Those will be the species that we see most commonly causing disease in calves. When we look at it under the microscope, we can't really identify the species, so we have to actually hatch those eggs out to be able to identify what species they are. So so we don't really know when we're looking at them. We're just sort of counting the eggs that we see. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the life cycle. How does that work? Most of these species have a two to four week life cycle. Uh, it starts with oocysts or oocytes in the environment that are spread by usually the adult cows. They'll sporulate outside the animal, so change into a form that can be taken up by a younger calf and those spores will infect cells, multiply inside cells that are lining the intestinal tract. Then they'll literally cause those cells to burst. So one will may invade a cell, multiply into however many hundreds can fit into there or how many uh, little parasites can fit into a cell, rupture that cell, move downstream a bit, and start the same process in a whole nother set of cells. So it can go from being one to literally millions within a fairly short time and through one life cycle. As it goes from cell to cell, causing this rupturing, it causes the bleeding, the damage to the lining of the gut, the damage to the part of the intestine that's supposed to absorb nutrients. And instead we're getting bleeding, inflammation, all kinds of byproducts of that, that are a real drag on the animal and definitely fit a, a production limiting disease. We can go anywhere from severe clinical illness where we, we know it and we've got a sick or dying calf to something that's got a milder infection, but still something that's affecting how that calf grows and performs. Where does this parasite come from? What's the usual source of the infection, Andy? Uh, adult cows, the mothers of these calves are going to be carrying coccidia at a low level. There are likely some that are higher shedders than others. Um, those animals themselves have immunity to disease caused by the parasite, but they can shed it into the environment. So then the level of problem we're going to see with the next set of cattle that are infected depends on the environment, how dirty things are, how wet they are, how well or poorly drained things are, and then on the animal themselves. Are they in really good health? Are they in really good nutritional condition? Or is there something that is uh, making them sick for another reason or compromising their immune system so that that parasite can really take hold and hurt them quite badly? 
You mentioned that multiplication stage that's pretty important to recognize that multiplication rate within the animal. So once you get a sick calf, it starts excreting huge quantities of these oocysts into the environment and they can then infect other calves as well. Talked about this a little bit already, but what are the typical clinical signs that we see in calves affected with coccidiosis? So the classical thing that a lot of producers are familiar with is bloody diarrhea. That distinguishes this in large part from other uh, reasons for young calf diarrhea. We can often make a fairly accurate diagnosis by knowing the age of the calf and whether the diarrhea that they've got is, is got blood in it or not. Then is, of course, from the diarrhea is dehydration. That can be anywhere from mild to very severe and life-threatening. We will see anemia in calves that have bloody diarrhea for a longer period of time, enough that they're actually losing enough of their blood volume that they become anemic. We can see other illnesses become worse, like if they were in a situation where they might get a pneumonia and they're already uh, affected by coccidiosis, that could be maybe worse than it would have been without coccidiosis. We will see sometimes the strange symptoms such as the nervous coccidiosis. And basically everything else is the after effects. We can see calves that recover from the original case of coccidiosis, but they just don't do very well afterwards. The damage that happens to their intestine does not go back to fully healed once they're over it. So they, if they're severely affected, they could be a very poor doing animal from that point on. Or they could have something that takes away a few percentage of their, you know, what their body weight would have been had they not had it. And that's probably as big of a problem for producers as the sick ones. I'd, I tell the people that when we have a few sick calves, guaranteed there's maybe three to five or more times as many calves that are affected by it. And it's taking weight off those calves as well. It's just not as uh, apparent to them. On a day-to-day, they, they won't see them being quite so sick as the worst ones. Does it actually kill animals? Occasionally, I guess, but probably more commonly, we see these sort of production-limiting losses and animals that recover and maybe just don't do very well. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do see some mortality with this. We see some dead calves. It is more rare than if you had a, a severe case of viral scours going through your herd. That can take a lot of calves in a real big hurry. Coccidia, they will tend to be a milder infection as far as death loss goes, but still, you know, very important to the overall health of the group and to the producer's bottom line. Okay, so how do we diagnose it? We look for these calves that are a little bit older. They're usually three weeks of age or older, and they have bloody diarrhea, or they might be weaned calves, as you talked about. So we see this calf and when it has some bloody diarrhea, how do we make sure that it's coccidiosis and not something else? Right. Um, The best thing we can do there is to get fecal samples from those calves and analyze them under the microscope, looking for the oocytes. The oocysts are, are a certain diameter. They're a few times the size of red blood cell. And there will be cases where the microscope slide is absolutely covered in these things. Uh, So those are very easy diagnosis. 
It's a little more problematic in some cases when you've got a lot of bloody diarrhea. It's actually washing out and and not showing you quite as many oocysts as you'd expect. Plus, uh, these things don't read the book. They're not going to shed at a nice, steady rate. They may be a lot one day and less the next. So there can be some problems in finding it out. If we see the symptoms and we can find some oocysts, then we pretty much know that's what we've got. Sometimes we will take on, on fatal cases, we'll get the actual lumen of the intestine preserved in formaldehyde and off to the lab. And when they can look at those sections, they will see all those cells lining the intestines filled with those coccidia. And that is, I guess, more of a, of a gold standard as far as saying, this is what killed this calf. Not just that those oocysts are present, but that they're in there in such big numbers in the gut lining that we know that that's the reason that the calf died. Right. That's a good point. And they can identify some of that damage to those intestinal cells as well in that pathology. Right. So you mentioned to me earlier that sometimes when you see coccidiosis outbreaks, uh, you always want to look for other problems. So why is that? Why did you, uh, why did you make that statement? Sure. There's times when we expect, given the conditions and the age of the animals, say this is not surprising that we'd see coccidia in this group of calves at this age. Other times we'll see maybe some infected at the right age, and then we'll see animals that are a year or more older than those that are actually affected by coccidia as well. And, and we say, hey, these animals should have been able to already have an immune response and uh, not be affected by the parasite the same way. So when we see that, when we see something that doesn't fit the normal bill, uh, we'll look for other problems that are going along with it. Uh, in our area, something we will see that uh, goes along with this is commonly a copper deficiency, and that affects the animal's ability to mount an immune response to lots of different problems, coccidia being one of them. And we've seen animals that uh, were dying as coming two-year-olds and three-year-olds from coccidiosis where they should not have been. A main problem with those animals was their copper deficiency, but it was the coccidia that, fi that finally killed them. I haven't seen this a bunch in my own time, but I've been told by older practitioners that they tended to see BVD virus when it was um, more around than we see it these days as a thing that was a comorbidity or a sickness that happened along with coccidiosis. So that's one thing we watch for as well, any sign of other viruses that are affecting them at the same time. So that's a good thing to remember that if we see coccidiosis in animals where we wouldn't expect it, we probably should be looking for other risk factors that might be playing a role or maybe other diseases. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. So let's say we have an outbreak of coccidiosis in a group of, in a group of calves. What can we do to treat those calves when we see them getting sick? Treatment of clinical cases can be really frustrating. There are some highly effective preventives, and a couple of those preventives are also good at treating as best we can. And I say that meaning that if producer finds a calf in the very early stages of a bacterial pneumonia and they give him the proper antibiotic, next day, that calf might not look like he was very sick at all. With coccidiosis, it is much more a case of identifying ones that are sick with it, 
giving them appropriate treatments to try to help the calf get over it. You'll suppress that, uh, the growth of those oocysts and the damage from the coccidia enough to let the calf make it through. And that's about as good as we get as far as treatment goes. So sometimes it's replacing the fluid that they're losing, but more often it's something that's targeted that will suppress or kill some of the coccidia. So things like sulfa drugs, trimethoprim and sulfa combined, so Borgel, Trivetrin, those medications, those are drugs that are relatively effective. Amprolium, there is liquid form of that and uh, a crumble that can be fed to calves. We tend to use those on older calves in the weaned calf category. Toltrazurol is something that we use a lot on young calves, both as preventive, but also as treatment if, it, if they're maybe six weeks old and, and are coming down with bloody diarrhea. We'll do that as well as fluids to try to support that calf and get them through. Right. And we should mention these are all prescription products. So you need to talk to your veterinarian and they'll prescribe what is most appropriate for your situation. Mm-hmm. What about prevention? It's probably better to prevent this disease wherever we can, but let's start before we start talking about the pharmaceutical products that we might use as part of our prevention program. Let's just start with some general management. Are there some things we can do with the herd to lower the risk of coccidiosis in our cattle? Clean, dry, spread out. Those are things that are kind of key to doing what we can to manage through this. It is an environmental contaminant that likes the mucky, poorly drained areas, and it makes it much easier for those calves to pick up those oocysts from the manure from older animals. And crowded conditions with the older calves, not usually being the ones that get really sick, it's when the older calves multiply it, as you talked about earlier, and spread it to the younger calves, which will pick up a very large load. The first calf may have time to, to kind of adapt to the organism as it goes through and not get that sick. When that younger calf gets a huge environmental load, they get can get very ill very quickly. So having appropriate ages of calves together and preventing old ones from being with very, very young calves on a prolonged calving season, that's a big one for for trying to spread out that risk and not get massive infections happening to those younger calves. But, you know, clean, dry, well-drained, enough space for all your animals. Those are, are key things to help. Reducing the environmental contamination from your cows is one novel way to to look at reducing the environmental load. So using products that you give to the cows that suppress how much that they will contaminate the area. Uh, So something like monansin or rumansin is talked about as uh, managing what the cows will spread to to start the whole ball rolling in the first place. And I, I would lump that part of using monansin in with the environmental management. And so that environmental management would all be the same principles that we use for calf scours control, really, for the most part. Right. And we've talked about that before on the podcast, but but many of the similar principles. It's probably why we don't see young calf coccidiosis as often in those later calving herds that tend to calve out on pasture or 
are more spread out at calving time, they probably get a lower dose, but maybe that makes them a little more susceptible when they're older because they haven't had as much exposure as a young calf. Early born calves that are being born in January, February, March, they may be more at risk because they're born in more intensive situations and more likely to get a higher dose uh, as a young calf. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about pharmaceutical products for prevention. You mentioned the Menensen one for cows, which is maybe more environmental control. We do have an option for prevention in terms of calves. What can we what can we use there? So for the young calves, for the winter-born calves that we know are going to go through the, the messy spring weather, we have found in our practice, and, and I think quite a large number of practices in, in Western Canada, that giving toltrazurol to calves uh, at a very young age, even younger than what the, some of the label claim talks about with this product, and uh, the, the brand name product is Baycox, and we'll give those to one and two day old calves. And we will not see this disease manifesting the same way whenever we use that product. So it tends to get rid of the clinical disease we'll see at a month or older. It, it seemed a little nonsensical at first why this would work so well. But I think what's happening is that product stays with the calf uh, during those first couple weeks of age when they're picking up some oocysts. And it's eliminating them and then letting a small amount get through and, and the calf must be making some own of their own natural immunity to it. And by the time they're older, when they're a couple months old, that product that we gave them is long gone, but they don't seem to come down with coccidia the same. So whether it's just buying them some time to gain their own immunity, I think, you know, research may not be able to even tell us that because it is you know, a little bit hard to model and not something you want to leave to chance. So it's not something like we're going to treat part of these calves and not the other part. The consequences are just too bad for, especially for some of these spring calves that are going to be pretty heavy calves come fall. A lot of them could be purebred calves. Uh, it's not something we want to take a chance with. So when we have used that tetrazeril on those young calves, it's made a big difference for what we see in the, the calf, the baby calf end of things. Yeah, I've heard that same story lots of different places that the anecdotes about using tetrazeril in young calves, it seems to be fairly effective. It's interesting. There's not a lot of good clinical trial data on that. There is Lots of clinical trial data on toltrazerol in calves, but it's all in dairy calves or older calves, and it does show it reduces the number of oocysts shed and it reduces clinical disease, and so it shows that it's effective there. There's not a lot of good research done when we give it to very young calves like we're most producers are doing in Western Canada. So it's interesting, but I hear the same story everywhere that it's very effective. Uh, there's a couple of studies that have just come out that have suggested there might be resistance starting to toltrazerol in some uh, parts of the world. So uh, hopefully that's going to stay away from North America. But if we use it a lot, that's probably the parasites will adapt and they'll become resistant to it, uh, no doubt. I, I think uh, the way that we're using toltrazerol in these baby calves lends itself to selecting for some resistance, and I really do fear that. It is the type of product that the 
return for the health of those calves and for the producers is, is just too great to, to try to totally alter how we're using it. Plus just the logistics of handling those much older calves is going to be very difficult. So I think this is one we're going to have to just be very watchful about and be working on other means of prevention, not just tetrazeral. Right. We probably shouldn't just use it as a crutch and should worry yes. about some of those gen- general management principles as well if we can. Let's finish off with a brief discussion about nervous coccidiosis. That's what you diagnosed in that first case you described. What do we know about this much rarer condition? So unfortunately, not a lot is known about what they consider to be a specific toxin. In doing some background reading about this again, it's uh, it's still not been totally isolated. Just that we know that uh, it'll be the byproducts of the cell's life and function in the gut that put something into the bloodstream that's directly neurotoxic. And it sends them into convulsions that will be from one to quite a few in a day. Uh, it is generally progressive. It is almost not worth trying to treat as a, uh, as far as treating the seizures go. We can give the calf treatment for coccidia. We could give them supportive care, but 80 to 90% of those calves or higher are going to die once they're showing symptoms of nervous coccidiosis. Unfortunately, not much we can do about it once they reach that stage. It's been my experience. The cases I've seen, they've almost all died uh, despite what I've done. I've I've talked to a few vets, though, that said, oh, they've had some luck in treating them, but that hasn't been the case I, in my situation. I think luck would be the key word there, too. Um, the calf that we discussed early in the podcast, I think, was uh, was deceased before we were done preg checking. So it didn't make it too long, that's for sure. It is a strange symptom. We have had some situations where there's almost been outbreaks of nervous coccidiosis. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of rare. It's usually the odd case, but but yeah. I have had several situations where we've seen an outbreak of the nervous signs. And it tends to always happen in colder weather for the most part. I'm not sure that's always true, but we do sort of see that link between cold temperatures and nervous coccidiosis too. So it's one of those mysteries, an old disease. It's been around for a long time and we still don't completely understand everything about it. This has been great, Andy. Thank you so much for being with me today and doing the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's great to get somebody with such great practical knowledge and you've got a great practice down there and we really appreciate you taking time and spending it here with me tonight. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me, John. This has been a great pleasure and uh, best of luck with uh, the next podcast. And it's a great job you're doing here. So keep it up. We appreciate all your efforts in these. Thanks, Andy. That's it for our show for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Andy Acton. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and review us on Apple or Spotify. And if you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.